Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. Okay, so yeah, we're here. We're here. You're out there in digital land. And, well, it's been a very busy weekend for us. Um, it became the best show, uh, first show this weekend. Which is good. Yeah. That's good. Yep. We got it done. <laughs> We we may be a little tired, so. But if if you're here watching with us, we're very appreciative of that. There's a lot of scotch tonight. Yes, yes. So, how much did you pour me? Three fingers. She's. You see that? That's that's he all. He said straight, he had a bad day. That's, that's all straight. It's all straight scotch. It's gonna be a fun show tonight. <laughs> As I said, he said he had a bad day. I was trying to. Oh, I also made him cookies. He did. Those were. <laughs> and I made a banana nut muffin too. So, anyways, hope that uh, hope that everybody is doing well out there in the ether tonight. And uh, somehow, some way, it's already February twentieth. We're most of the way through February. I I don't know where the time goes anymore. Um, I don't know. Anyway. We're not going to ponder about that. That's too deep of that tonight. But yeah, so um, but yeah, so this past weekend we did, had a good Churchill tour on Friday. Yep. We had a a very good haunted dinner event at Patrick Henry's on Saturday, which was quite delightful. We uh, first time we've been able to do one of those publicly since pre-COVID. So yeah. And we did part of our like dimension script from last week and part of it from this week. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they got a little practice. And, and some other stuff. So yeah. they, they got stuff to dinner that we didn't do last week, last time, that we're not doing this time. So, yeah. yeah. Good Mix it all up. And, and uh, if, before we even get into it, yes, there is already the uh, the beginnings of an outline for an Executive Mansions Part 3, but it will not be two weeks from now. We got yeah, it. That'll be a wild number. I need to dive down there. I'll hold again. Yeah. And, well, things are planned for May. Yep, yep, yep. So, so it'll be post-May. <laughs> so... Yeah, but anyway, so let's see. We've been we've been busy. Oh, this coming up this this coming weekend, we got a, another one of our special events. This Saturday, we're partnered again with the uh, John Marshall House for one of our tours over there. So uh, tickets are available. You can go ahead and get those for two. We got tickets available at seven and eight o'clock. That tour is fantastic. Yeah. Love that tour. Yeah. A lot of fun. And first so, half is inside with the John Marshall Business and CPRI. Second half is outside with us. Yeah. 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 But yeah, and uh, Dana just chimed in Happy Residence Day. And yes, yeah, that's actually part of the reason why we're doing the Executive Mansions uh, two weeks ago and again tonight is because we're, you know, it's uh, President's Day today. So even though we're not talking about presidents today, it's Executive Mansions. It's Executive Mansions. Ronald Reagan does get a very passing mention later on in the episode, but uh, we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. But let's go ahead and dive right in. We're going to actually start up north in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, to be specific. And this is their old executive mansion, so not the current one. Um, now, we don't share a border with Ohio, but the capital city of Columbus is just a day's drive from us in downtown Richmond. And much like Richmond, one of their main thoroughfares is named Broad Street. I think it's a law you have to have a Broad Street in every city. 
Anyway, uh, so it's on East Broad Street where many of the Columbus well-to-do settled in and around the turn of the century. East Broad Street in Columbus became one of the major residential hubs of the city during the major part of the growth between the mid-1800s and 1930s. Amongst these beautiful homes stands an electric brick and stone mansion that was, excuse me, eclectic brick and stone mansion, hello, Blair, and it was built in 1904 for Charles Lindbergh, a newspaper man and the president of the Layla uh, Regalia Company, which produced flags and buntings. For context, Lindbergh's eventual next-door neighbor would be Joseph Firestone, the man who still adorns the famous tire manufacturer today. I'm getting attacked. That's rude, sir. Now, Lindenberg lived in this opulent home until 1920 when the state of Ohio purchased the mansion for use as the governor's residence. For the next 37 years, the home would serve 10 governors. It was then sold by the state as a new governor's residence was constructed in the nearby suburb of Bexley. The mansion was rezoned for commercial use and a variety of businesses moved in, including an event venue business, a restaurant, and hair salon. The Ohio Historical Society also used this mansion for their headquarters for a period of time. Unfortunately, the building also stood empty for several intervals between various businesses. Then the Columbus Landmarks Foundation bought the property and made it their headquarters for a number of years, stabilizing its condition. However, the maintenance of this uh, turn of the century mansion was a huge chunk of change and too little, uh, excuse me, Little too much for the nonprofit organization to handle. So in the late 1990s, the Columbus Landmarks Foundation sold the building to a different nonprofit, the Columbus Foundation. Now the Columbus Foundation's focus was on the general welfare of the community, and the old mansion afforded them the opportunity not only to revitalize its historic structure, but also to become the center of the community that they served. Though the building has seen multiple uses and has changed hands several times, one thing has remained consistent for many years. The spirits of generations past that still call the old governor's mansion home. There is the first spirit of the one-time housekeeper. This woman is dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing besetting her station. She has been working and wandering these halls and, and rooms of the mansion going on about her business while keeping an eye on the living. She's an African-American in a blue dress who is seen throughout the mansion. She is quiet and the, uh, excuse me, she's quite the active spirit who has taken an interest in the mansion's decor, renovation, and maintenance work that is done throughout the years. She's been known to take pictures off the walls she didn't like. On one occasion, she even appeared to the staff member and spoke to this person expressing how happy she was with the renovations that were being done on the mansion. It's nice to know that the beautiful and historic home has a permanent caretaker keeping an eye on it. From the spirited realm, everything okay? I'm not sure. Eunice intently staring at something. Do I need to go investigate? She's right here. Okay. Staring at a space right behind us. Okay, so maybe we have a visitor. I mean, we do have a ghost in our house. Usually they're seen in the kitchen in the uh, sunroom, but maybe they ventured for story time. Yep. So everybody, yeah, so we, we have, this is Nico. Yes. You go stop it to come up and paw at me. Now he's got my lap, and I think that makes him happy. Yuna is over here staring at nothing that we can see. Vincent's over here in the line. Yeah, Vincent's out cold. And Lulu's probably upstairs in bed. Lulu is upstairs in bed. So, and that's just what Lulu does. Maybe she'll come down when she hears us talking and whatnot. 
scores of derricks dotted the capital grounds throughout the oil boom years of the 1930s and 40s. Originally, the west entrance was used as the front door. However, that door faced a road that remained unpaved for 24 years, making it a hazard to guests until a paving project in 1952 finally corrected the situation. Still, the official residence was, or entrance was eventually relocated to the north face of the mansion. In the 1960s, a helipad was hastily constructed at the southeast corner of the mansion to give then-President Lyndon Johnson a helicopter a convenient place to land during a visit to Oklahoma City. Upon his departure, the concrete surface was converted into a tennis court. Also of note is a swimming pool in the shape of the state of Oklahoma that was funded by private donors in the 1970s. Over the various generations of governors, many modifications were made to the mansion. More recent administrations have worked to return the mansion to its original state, preserving the state's building's historic value and highlighting the craftsmanship of native Oklahomans. As far as spirited inhabitants are concerned, the previously mentioned Alfalfa Bill is said to still roam the mansion's halls despite his term being up in 1935. According to staff, residents, and guests, Governor Murray haunts the stairs leading up to the second floor and causes people to stumble as they pass by. Former Oklahoma First Lady Kathy Keating once told the Chicago Tribune that she herself had been tripped. Keating did not believe in ghosts, but the stairs were inspected and found to be level, causing the answer to seem a little bit more on the spectral side. She was stumbling at the same spot over and over and over again. And there was absolutely no real physical reason for it. So, yeah, she blamed it on Governor Murray. Now, still, she seemed to bear no ill will to Governor Murray, saying, oh, he's ornery and he's fun. <laughs> ornery, yes, fun. We might debate that one. <laughs> On another occasion during Governor Keating's tenure, his sons and some friends were watching TV in the basement when Murray's ghost walked through the room. The kids were only 14 at the time and too cool to admit to be scared. Still, whenever asked about the sighting, there would always be a nervous edge to the laugh. <laughs> as far as mischievous spirits go, one could do worse than having to deal with Governor William Alfalfa Bill Murray. Yeah. I think I'd get along with the guy. Finally, doesn't blow smoke my face. Yeah, there's that. All right, so we're going to hop over to Montana. Helena, Montana. Helena, Montana. Now, Montana was admitted to the Union in 1889, but it was a well-established territory before that, with a number of people earning their fortunes on the frontier. One of these individuals was William Chessman, a cobbler from Massachusetts who had become an experienced miner in the California gold fields, and subsequently built himself a respectable empire of mines, water leases, and other business ventures in the last chance gulch an area that is on the outskirts of modern Helena. Now, he used some of his formidable fortune to build himself a beautiful home uh, in 1888 at the corner of North Ewing Street and East 6th Street. Unfortunately for Jessman, the Depression of 1893, a.k.a. the Silver Panic, uh, crushed his finances and he was forced to sell his mansion. Over the next two decades, the mansion changed hands a couple of times between private owners before being purchased by the state of Montana to serve as the first official governor's residence in 1913. 
Now, why was there such a delay between Montana statehood and the purchase of its first official residence? Well, it wasn't until 1913 that a Montana governor was elected that didn't actually already live in Helena. Uh, so the first governor from outside of Helena was Governor Sam Stewart, the state's sixth governor. And he moved into the mansion with his wife, Stella, and their three daughters and served as governor until 1921. Eight more governors would reside in this house until 1959 when a purpose-built governor's mansion was constructed by the state. The mansion was neglected for the next decade, inhabited only by a caretaker hired by the city, and to prevent the mansion from basically completely falling apart. Now, during this time, the caretaker would occasionally have the pleasure of being visited by the children of the former governors. Now, of course, they are all grown up. They would be allowed to wander in and about the old, disused home, sharing some of their memories of their life there, and much to the light of the caretaker, he very much enjoyed the visits and their stories. Now, talk to your baby, though. They're very restless. Now, the neglect finally gave way to preservation efforts in 1969 when the Montana Historical Society acquired the building and set to work restoring the mansion to its former glory. Today, guests can tour the mansion and take it in a remarkable, excuse me, take in the remarkable construction and furnishings. The mansion was outfitted with steam heat, but they also had seven fireplaces that would have helped to fend off the cold. The first thing you see when you enter to the left is the parlor. It's highlighted with cherry wood crown molding and door frames, and the craftsmanship and splendor are only matched by the beautiful parquet glory. Moving into the dining room, one of the highlights is the intricately carved chairs featuring the faces of lions. Now, I will say during Governor Stewart's tenure, his daughters would use the lion's mouth to store their gum while they were eating. <laughs> Let's go on to the spirit, shall we? This one's for you, Patrick. One story in particular was common among the mansion's former residents. It was about a little cat that roamed in the mansion hallways. It was friendly, of course, a beautiful little kitty, and it always came to the children begging for attention. It would come bounding down the hallway, purring, rubbing against the kid's legs, and time and again, the lucky child who had the cat's attention would bend down to scoop it up, but just as the child's hands closed over its little body, the ghost cat would disappear. Several generations of tour guides have spent time alone in the mansion for the last 30 years, and today, sometimes they feel sh uh, find the shades pulled up when they were left down. Small things might be out of place. A picture, for example, might be slightly ajar on the wall, or a closet door that's always kept shut might be discovered wide open. These odd but innocent inexplicable inexplicable happenings have been long attributed to the feline who has claimed the mansion halls as its own. As for the identity of the cat, many think that it belonged to the Tuscan family during the 1890s, and uh, when they were pouring through the Montana Historical Society archives. They found a picture of the family's sleek black cat on the mansion's front lawn. This feline friend is believed to be the only one of its kind to have laid its paws on the floor inside the mansion, as no records of cats have been uh, associated with any of the governor families that have lived there. The Historical Society has now embraced the spooky and furry little chapter of its history. On Halloween, they have been known to open the door to trick-or-treaters so that they can have their own turn and looking for the resident ghost kitty cat. <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah, speaking of. Well, I have a kitty cat who's interested in the spirit. 
1967, Reagan was on his way out of office and the mansion was transferred to the California State Park System to use as a museum. Subsequent governors lived in a variety of residences in the greater Sacramento area, except for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who would typically commute from Los Angeles to Sacramento daily via a private jet. Talking about your deep pockets. <laughs> you already own the jet. Yeah, I... Just saying. Yeah. Anyway, the mansion did serve as the governor's residence again from 2015 to 2019 when Governor Jerry Brown and his wife lived there after an extensive renovation. Quite extensive. <laughs> as a museum, the mansion offers visitors a glimpse of the into the opulence of the Victorian era with velvet furnishing, Persian rugs, delicate china, marble fireplaces, the gold frame mirrors, and of course, that's just the interior. There are the beautiful grounds and gardens. Uh, they're extremely lovely and they're a beautiful extension of the property and structure. And perhaps this is why so many who walk those properties in generations past may have decided to hang around for a wee bit. Oops. What did I do? I did something. Oops. You broke it. I did not break it. You broke, the, you broke the script. I shrunk it. <laughs> now we can read it again. Guests and employees alike have heard inexplicable things about the governor's mansion. One tour guide who spent decades working at the mansion recalled the sound of disembodied footsteps on the stairs between the dining room and the kitchen. He uh, was deniably alone <clears throat> uh, in the house at the time, and he was also not the first to hear these unusual footsteps. Earl Warren, Jr., the son of Governor Earl Warren, Heard these footsteps on multiple occasions during his time while living in the home. The bedroom where he stayed was just a few, few short steps away from the stairs, placing him in the front row for the phantom step. Another tour guide in the mansion, or shall we say ex-tour guide, uh, was working her way through the home on what would be her last day of work. She was putting up the red velvet cords to help direct guests through the home and to keep them out of certain spaces so that they could not damage any valuable antiques. However, when the guide reached the end of her circuit, she turned around to find all the cords she had just been putting up were completely hanging down. She was spooked, but proceeded to put them all back up again. And when she reached the end of the circuit for the second time, an unseen hand grabbed her, grabbed her rear end, and she promptly decided that was enough and quit. Assault by ghostly apparition was not in her job description. No. The entity or entities responsible for the activities of the California Governor's Mansion remained unidentified, but given their penchant for inappropriate behavior, it might be safe to say that the spirit is of the political persuasion, perhaps. A little alliteration. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, yeah. Yep. Anyway. Having been grabbed by spirits before is not bad. Mm. I don't blame her for anything. New, new. Just like, peace out. I'm not going to have some dead governor groping. Yes. Yeah. Nope. Not doing that. Not doing that. So. To Nevada? Yes, yes. Our Nevada. next stop. Very, very close by, actually. As far as, uh, as, far as state capitals go, um, just a few few hours to the east. So you go ahead, you pick up Interstate 80, which is goes right through Sacramento. Take it to the east. Cross over the Nevada state line. At that point, you hit Reno. From Reno, just a very, very short distance to the south, you get a ride in Carson City. 
Carson City, Nevada. Yes, that is the uh, the capital. It is not Las Vegas. I've driven by there. Yep, not not Las Vegas. It's not Reno. Yeah, it, well, I, I I I'm I'm all for that. We're, we'll get there. This place, uh, yeah. So anyway, now well, Las Vegas might be where the big rollers are. It's uh, Carson City where the state's political business resides. Nevada became a state in 1864 in the middle of the Civil War. It was a bit of a rush ordeal that revolved around the issues of electoral votes for the upcoming presidential election and the eagerness of the non-Mormon population in the western part of what was then the Utah Territory, having a very strong desire to break away from the Mormons that uh, dominated the eastern part of the Utah Territory. Uh, and so that is likely part of the reason why the eventual state capital for Nevada wound up on the far west side of the state, as it's about as far as you can go in the state of Nevada would be, you know, away from Utah before actually crossing into California. So, yeah. Mormons and non-Mormons really didn't get along back then. Really didn't get along. That's a whole other history lesson in and of itself. Quite fascinating, but... We're not going to dive into the Book of Mormon right now. The <laughs> Book of... <clears throat> so, anyways, uh, it didn't hurt that the Comstock Lode, yes, you probably made it sound familiar, of Gold Rush fame, this was also discovered very close by to Carson City, bringing thousands of settlers to the city with a tint of gold in their eyes. As with many Gold Rush boom towns, however... Times were not always kind. The population plummeted after the golds dried up, and Carson City eventually resigned itself to being a perpetual small city. They eventually embraced the title of the smallest capital city in the United States. Now, I don't know if they can still claim that, because at that point, they actually had plummeted down. There was only like 1,500 people living in Carson City. Yeah, like, it was small when I lived out. Tiny, 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 tiny. tiny. And I mean, it's still... Not a big city. I think only about fifty thousand people live there. Yeah. Um, so well, said, I, I drove by a lot because I went to Vegas because I was my nearest airport. That was actually reasonable. Yeah. And you would drive right by Carson going up. No, 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 no. Oh no! I'm sorry. You drive by right by uh, Reno going up. No, Carson and Reno are far to the northwest of Las Vegas. You're thinking of Henderson. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. You're thinking Henderson. Henderson is the city that's very close to Las Vegas. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute. But yeah, no, it's, um, I'd have to look and see exactly how far it is, but um, it's quite the haul from Las Vegas to get up to the Carson City region. It's north of that. Yeah, north and west. You basically, if you follow that, like, diagonal part of the border, it basically, you get to that corner where it turns north. That's where Reno and Carson City are right in that area. Okay, my geography was flip-flopped. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. It's the whiskey. Blame it on the whiskey. I totally bring you on those. I've got a lovely bus going right now. So, uh, now that said, of course, we're we're here to talk about executive mansions. Uh, And Carson City is home to quite the beautiful executive residence. It took about 40 years after Nevada became a state in 1864 for the Nevada state government to finally getting around to the possibility of building a governor's mansion. In 1907, the state assembly uh, approved the mansion bill, 
which was approved to provide a permanent residence for the state's highest government office. Well-known Reno architect George A. Ferris was hired to design the mansion. Construction on the ambitious project started in 1908, and the mansion was finished and ready for occupation by July of 1909. Governor Denver Dickerson and his family were the first residents of the beautiful home. The governor's daughter, June Dickerson, was born in this mansion in September 1909 and has the distinction of being the only child to be born there. The Nevada Governor's Mansion is an elegant two-story classical revival building which sprawls across its generous acreage. The entryway in the front has an eye-catching two-story portico and four fluted columns supporting the second-story porch that wraps around the mansion's front facade. Inside, the first floor is comprised of the grand entry hall, the reception room, a formal dining room, the governor's study, a luncheon room, and, of course, the kitchen. Gotta eat. The mansion was structurally reinforced, renovated, and redecorated from 1957 to 1958, and a circular pergola, the curved front stairs, and metal balustrades were added to the mansion in 1969. Additional buildings were added to the grounds to meet the needs of the facilities in 1998. Just keeps spreading. They had land to work with, though. Not like our government. Do they have a Nevada shaped pool, though? Because mm, there's two states that have their own pool shaped at their state. Texas has one, right? I'd be shocked. I think North Carolina has one, too. Yeah. Texas always does. Texas things. I'm sure it's a big, big pool because of Texas. Oh, okay. Anyways, yes. So the building does have a history of haunting. That's why we're actually here tonight. Uh, and there are two theories as to who and why the entities, a woman and a young girl, are lingering in the governor's mansion. One theory is that an antique grandfather clock, which was given as a president, president as a present to the governor at this time, was haunted uh, was haunted by these two spirits. The other theory is that some former residents have decided to spend their afterlife in this glorious home, namely First Lady Una Dickerson and her daughter, June Dickerson. Yes, the one that was actually born in the residence. Regardless of the source, staff and overnight guests have witnessed these two wandering the second floor and hallways, the woman wearing a long white dress followed by the young girl. The second floor of the mansion has always been the private quarters of the first family, leading the sightings to cause some excitement on various occasions when errant visitors were believed to be wandering where they should not. Another male entity, perhaps a former servant of the people, seems to have enjoyed his job so much during his term that perhaps he isn't ready to leave the mansion just yet. Some think it is Governor Jones. His heavy footfalls are still heard time and again on the staircase leading to the second floor. Other unsettling events include unexpected cold spots by the antique grandfather clock on the first floor and the doors to the parlor having a tendency to open on their own, accompanied by a moving cold spot across the threshold. The various occurrences throughout this executive residence have led some to name the Nevada Governor's Mansion as the fourth most haunted place in Nevada. Quite the feat considering Las Vegas' tendency to be considered quite the haunted city in its own right. If you ever get to Carson City, check out to see if they're having one of their many open house events at the mansion, or perhaps you could even catch one of the ghost walks that they offer there, particularly in October. I'm jealous. 
Big Ten, Virginia, you need to do this. I'll happily do it for you. Yeah, we, we could easily curate a wonderful haunted tour of the Virginia governor's mansion if we were so allowed. <laughs> Intent, nudge, nudge. Let's make it a charity event. Sure, we'll go with that. There's fun every week for a different charity. Uh, anyway, uh, so, is that it? No, 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 no. Yep. We've got one more. Okay, this is a slightly shorter week. <laughs> I think we've been rambling um, on enough that we've uh, we've managed to stretch it out a little bit. All right, so we're going to jump back up to state number one, Delaware. Uh, so this is in Dover, known as Woodburn. Uh, of course, the governor's mansion here is one of the few with an actual estate name, Woodburn, as I mentioned. The land Woodburn stands upon was uh, granted to David Morgan and his heirs in 1684 by the Swedish crown. In 1780, Charles Hilliard III purchased the land at the sheriff's sale for $110. In 1790, he constructed the home that would be called Woodburn. The two-story brick home is in the Flemish Bond pattern and has endured for more than 200 years. The main section of the house has three bays with the main entrance on the far right. The large Dutch door and original wrought island strap brought iron strap hinges. Cat politics. Okay. And iron lock locks allow the door to swing open with very little effort. The door is surmounted by a large fanlight inside a projecting pediment. And the double sash nine panel windows are framed by sandstone blocks above and below and wooden dog headed shutters. Okay, we totally should have done this one first before we've been drinking. All the alliteration? Yes. You're welcome. Blah. I did not do some twisters. I did the editing, but you put it in order, so. You cut two. The chimney project said. I just uh, moved them. They will be on the next time we get around to this. Do you need me to take over, dear? Where did you think I'll be? Ah, there we are, right there. Okay. A brick chimney projects through the full screw. The wind has slightly smaller windows with a basement entryway. The house was inherited by Mary, Hilliard's daughter, and her husband, Martin W. Bates. Bates was a doctor, merchant, lawyer, and a U.S. senator. In 1820, Bates leased Woodburn to the governor, Jacob Stout, for the first time that Woodburn would be used as an executive residence. Bates sold the house in 1825 to Daniel and Mary Cowgill. Cowgill was a devoted abolitionist and a Quaker who freed his family's slaves and allowed them to meet in the Great Hall at Woodburn. The house remained in the family for years until it was sold in 1912 to Daniel O. Hastings. In his ownership, the brick front porch, pillars on the south facade, a reflecting pool, and numerous interior modifications were completed. He sold the house in 1918 to retired Philadelphia dentist, Frank Hall, who also completed more renovations of the interior. In Hall's residency, a young guest named Jessica Irby visited the house. She would later live in the house as the wife of the governor of Delaware. Upon Frank Hall's death in 1953, there was a proposal to secure the house as the governor's mansion, but it was originally disapproved by the legislature. 
The property was divided in two, with the school purchasing the majority of the land and Thomas Murray purchasing the house and a surrounding acre and a half. The proposal of a residence for the governor was revised in 1965 when Governor Charles L. Terry Jr. and his wife Jessica Irby Terry, yes, Jessica Irby from before, secured Woodburn for the state. The house was refurbished by Miss Terry with period pieces dating from the house's construction. The decoration was completed a year later with an open when an, and an open house was held in February 1966. Woodburn has served as the official residence ever since. The first documented Woodburn ghost appeared around 1815, about 25 years after the house was built. Dr. and Mrs. Martin Bates, the owners at the time, were entertaining Mr. Lorenzo Dow, a well-known ignorant Methodist preacher. One morning at the breakfast table, Mrs. Bates asked Mr. Dow to begin the meal with a prayer. Mr. Dow hesitated and asked if they should wait for the other guests in the house. Surprised, Mrs. Bates explained that there were no other guests. Mr. Dow described in detail the gentleman he met on the staircase. The older gentleman supposedly wore a powdered wig, knee breeches, and a ruffled shirt. This description bothered Mrs. Bates a great deal because it was an exact sketch of her father, Mr. Charles Hilliard III. Now, Mr. Hilliard was the builder of Woodburn and has been seen by others uh, since Mr. Dow. Mr. Hilliard, according to Dover history, was known to enjoy a strong drink, and he may still imbibe with some of the other spirited friends to this day. Multiple generations of governors and their wives have reported that leaving a decanter of wine in the dining room is like rolling out the welcome mat to the rest of the spirit. Disembodied footsteps are heard around the dining room at all hours of the night, and some have even reported seeing ghosts in Revolutionary-era clothing floating across the room. Lafayette looks it. Oh, yeah, quite, quite. <laughs> These spirits have been called the wine ghosts by some, as unattended glasses of wine and wine decanters will be drained of their contents by the spirited guests. It seems that some of the ghosts still know how to party. One spirit whose identity is a little better known is that of a slave raider. Now, slave raiders were men from the South who tracked escaped slaves into the northern states before the Civil War. Given the spirit's one-time possession and the manner of his passing, it comes a little surprise that he is not exactly known to be amongst the more kindly spirits. His origin dates to the time when Dan Cowgill owned Woodburn. Now, again, Cowgill was a Quaker and abolitionist, and... Uh, one night, a group of angry raiders came to the mansion looking for escaped slaves. Calgill was able to chase them off, except for one raider who attempted to escape by climbing a poplar tree in the front yard. He slipped and got his head caught in a knot of the tree. He hung there, trapped and unnoticed, until he died. This tree still stands. To this day, witnesses report seeing his body hanging in the tree and hearing his screams as he tries to escape. Ending Woodburn on a slightly brighter note, there's also the apparition of a small girl in a gingham dress and bonnet. She was first spotted in the 1940s and has been seen carrying a candle and walking the gardens outside the mansion. She was also seen by some guests in the Great Hall during an inaugural party for Governor Mike Castle in the 1980s. However, her identity, identity seems to be a mystery. Fun note, many of these stories are featured on the official government website, 
for the Delaware Governor's Mansion. They fully embrace their spookiness. They do. And well, you just leave us a canter out for them every now and then, and all is good. Oh, let's see. Have been responding. You've been responding? As me. Sure, sure. I am so much further along than you. You poured me a whole heck of a lot. And I poured the seven miles from We head. won't get into the war party foul bordering on war crime that you committed right before we went on the air. Build good scotch. That's and, I'm not allowed to flop on this when I've got scotch nearby. Oh, but yes, that was our our last tale for this evening, and we we stretched out to almost 50 minutes. Yes, so our next tale will be uh, March 6th. It'll be Haunted North Dakota, and then on the 20th, it will be uh, Ireland Part Three per Alex's request, which we're looking forward to. Yes, happy to fulfill that request. And then on the 17th, we'll be doing Haunted in the Bat. Uh, oops, that's nope. the wrong one. Sorry. Wrong on one. the 3rd. You're in April right now. Yes. So the 20th, 20th is the Haunted of, Ireland. Of March. 20th yes. of March. And then the 3rd of April will be Haunted Tennessee. Tennessee. So those are the next three coming. Yep. As so, I said, I plan through May. Because right. we got a lot going on. So uh, we, got, busy. we got a, a slight, 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 very slight bit of a reprieve in the next couple of weeks. Of course, we do have our, our special tour with John Marshall on Saturday. Knock on wood, please. Thank you. Yep. But then, uh, let's see, so then we got a couple of weeks of just, quote, unquote, normal tours. But it is March. It is March. And March is the beginning of festival season here in Richmond. Yeah. And, uh, and as you know, there are festivals galore in March. So we Literally are... Yes. Yeah. So we're... Still figuring out, not necessarily the weekend of St. Patrick's, which is St. Patrick's falls on a Friday this year. We what have a Capitol Hill tour that night. What could possibly go wrong? That's why we're on Capitol Hill. We're on Capitol Hill. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. But um, so yeah, that's gonna be a normal weekend of tours though. Yes. At least as of right now. As of right now. And then the following weekend, there's two so major right events. Two major events the following weekend. Uh, there is uh, GalaxyCon here in Richmond, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the pop culture type. Um, actors, voice actors, comic hmm. book character writers, um, cosplayers, it's all there. It, it, it covers it all. And the Galaxy and then Con for convention. Yeah. So, yes, it covers everything. Big convention. That would be at the uh, Greater Richmond Convention Center. Let's mention it. We're we're supposed to actually be there speaking on we a few have occasions. Four panels. Supposedly. So we're we're we We don't have our schedule yet. We don't have our schedule. We have no idea when we're gonna be speaking or in what order or anything like that. But um yes, we yeah, have they are just starting to announce the actual um big time actor names and their what their panels will be. So uh we should be learning soon what our panel time slots will be. We're 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 fillers. But that's okay. We're, we're, we're speaking at Galaxy Four times. Cool. So, but yeah, so we're looking forward to that. And uh, then, well, we're also going to try to some way, somehow, maybe work out some miracle where we can have that going and also have our annual booth at the Churchill Irish Festival, which is that same weekend. 
Saturday is the questionable day. That's the problem right now because we just we don't have the schedule yet. And once we do have that, we'll be able to figure out what we're doing. We'll figure it out somehow, some way. Yep. We always do. Almost always, usually. Maybe I can figure out how to splice myself. Yep. Uh, I'd be careful, but I can do it. Yep. But uh, so there's that. And then the following weekend is, oh, yeah, the RBA Burlesque Festival. Yes. Which we are a presenting sponsor of the RBA Burlesque Festival this year. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it is also AuthorCon for Scares the Care, which you all know that we that support that and we love. Yeah. I thought that was uh, later in April. So yeah. the same weekend? The same weekend. Okay. So Saturday during the day we can go down, down, down to Williamsburg and Center night at the Burlesque Festival. Oops. Okay, well, yeah. It's a busy weekend. Back to back. Two busy week, weekends back to back. And then we can bring it again. Yep. And, it suppo- and some, supposedly somehow, some way, we will uh, work in editing for these, for our scripts. That's the reason why I've gotten all the way through May. I still have to do my editing. Yeah. I didn't finish editing this episode until less than 30 minutes before we went on the air tonight. So that's on me. I'll admit it. I, it is what it is. It happens. We get busy. Or we just fall asleep. That too. <laughs> but with that, that's that's our big news. That's what's coming up for us. Um, we hope you guys will support one of these things that we are involved in. If not more than one, that would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> Patrick wants to know if you, if you master by location. Between now and then, can you please share your secret? Let me work on Cloning. Yeah. Cloning. I was going to say, if I could figure out how to project a natural figure of myself somewhere that I can actually pick up things, yeah, that could work. I just finished binge-watching Black Mirror, that show is on Netflix, and they actually just had an episode where it was kind of weird. They're all weird, actually, but a woman had a little implant put into her her head, like right up against her brain, sat there for a week, and then they extracted it, and it basically like absorbed her personality, all that. So she cloned via a chip in her brain. She cloned via a chip in her brain, and basically this was then put into like a personal assistant type thing. I could work with that. Um, I suggest you watch the episode before committing to that. Okay. <laughs> Bad things will happen. Got it. Not necessarily to you, but um. Bad things will happen. Got it. Yep. Yeah. Can I go with the Picard version and have a a, a body that I just upload my brain to? Okay. That one seems to be working. Ah, uh, but we digress. And it's me allowed to Yeah, Patrick's seen it. He <laughs> kind of weird. That series is a lot. It is a lot. An awful lot. Okay, noted. Noted. All right, well, we're borderline tipsy going on drunk, and we're starting to ramble. Yes. So, so we will see you all in two weeks. Thank you for watching and putting up with us again yeah. for another episode. And, of course, if you decide to join us live, between now and then, that would be fantastic. We promise, that, I promise that if you come see us in person, we are not going to be drunk. We we don't do our we don't do our live stuff drunk. No, no just we we do that. Just we don't do our in person stuff. 
No, Chuck, no. The drinking happens afterwards. Yeah. We are storytelling professionals in real life. In the digital atmosphere. <laughs> okay, we you're digging a hole. <laughs> in the digital world, we just kind of cut the chains off. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everybody. We're going to call it a night now. Good night, all. Have a good day. And uh, oh, as always, happy to chat with you anytime. Feel free to drop us a note or anything anytime. Happy to hear from you. Um, Check out our new stuff that we're going to be adding to the website shortly. We have a new paranormal store. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be updating. So, yes. So, say that now. We're work in progress. Yes. So. Well, we finally got the stuff, so we can finally put it up. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The T-shirt's over there or something. Is it everything? I think so. Maybe under the blanket. Let me see. I thought we put that upstairs. Oh, here. Yes, so we have a new T-shirt. Which we will see. I threw it out, but got a little hump wrench written on the side that says, "Roses are red, violets are blue. I'd rather be doing something spooky with you." Yeah, there's that, and then I have the the haunt logo on the sleeve, which. Maybe can. And we're going to be working on a few more of these. Yeah, so one thing at a time. But we do have paranormal gear that you can buy as part of the ticket stuff now, and we're going to be having car stickers soon. Um, so, yeah, we've got some cool things that are, are now becoming available on our store <laughs> and hopefully at our hospital. Yes, hopefully. Knock on All right, so with that, we will be calling it a night. I said that for probably the third time now. Okay. So, yeah. You, 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 you can. You all can. right. So, good night, all. We will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay.